This is Pastor Terry Zabolski of Grace Community Church, located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. Just like to thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We uh, hope and trust that God's word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Well, take your Bible and look at uh, Genesis chapter 37. I have uh, been uh, thinking and praying and waiting upon the Lord for His timing for a series in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, this latter section. In fact, it is the last section of Genesis, and uh, a a series dealing with Joseph. He's a a man, he's God's man, he's God's man for a season, and he's an amazing character, uh, this Old Testament uh, personage that uh, we ought to find great encouragement from him. Uh, And uh, in the weeks that unfold, we're going to walk our way through chapters 37 through 50, uh, which is really the the generations of Joseph, uh, of Jacob, but Joseph is the the predominant character in this. Almost like uh, in the generations of Isaac, the one before this, Jacob was the key player. But now it's Joseph. And uh, we all have an idea of the story of Joseph. Some of you studied him when you were in Sunday school, and some of you have heard other series on him before. And so uh, by way of introduction, I want to uh, uh, preach this message, Joseph, God's man for a season. Look at, uh, just to introduce, look at chapter 37 of Genesis, verses 1 and 2, simply for today. Moses wrote, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, in the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Here it is. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, actually concubines, and he brought their father a bad report about them. We are introduced here in these two verses to, uh, to Jacob and hence primarily to Joseph. And today as we begin our study of Joseph, we discover that Joseph emerges from the pages of Scripture. And I submit to you one to whom we can all identify with. He's not like the Apostle Paul which uh, seems to walk ten feet above the sidewalk. I mean, who of us in our best days would, uh, would feel like uh, we're in Paul's company? We feel almost convicted when we hear, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain and this one thing I do. And when we look at our life and think about it, uh, um, we're not inspired uh, that we could be even named in his company. And there are others like that. You, you know, Moses, I, not really, <laughs> he's... And there's none like Moses. He was able to even see uh, as a man God on the Mount uh, uh, Sinai. Uh, he's uh, in a league altogether different, right? Uh, David, you might feel like. The Samuel might feel like. Isaiah, you might feel like. Jeremiah. But I submit to you that Joseph is very different. He's not a patriarch. He's a son of a patriarch. And yet, uh, he's one for whom you and I can uh, really identify with. He emerges from the pages of Scripture as such as one like us. One man writes, he was loved and hated. He was favored and abused. He was tempted and trusted. 
exalted and abased. And that's why we can uh, identify with them uh, in almost uh, a number of these areas. Genesis tells us more, incidentally, about Joseph than it does Abraham. When you think of Abraham, he is called the father of our faith, and even Paul picks up that theme in Romans, and rightfully so. But did you know that the Bible uh, tells us more of Joseph than it does Abraham? If you were to take Genesis and just uh, do a little study on that, you'd discover there are 14 chapters that teach us about Abraham, and there are 14 chapters that also teach us about Joseph. In this, the Jacob uh, uh, Toledoth, or generations, or story, if you will. But if you were to measure them word by word, you discover that uh, Joseph's story is 25% longer. And yet, uh, I don't think Joseph is taught enough in our Sunday school classes, our Bible studies, nor from our pulpit. In the Bible, we have more words of Joseph than any other Old Testament character. That's amazing. That in itself ought to cause us to focus upon his life and his words. And yet, I'm reminded he is never quoted one time in the New Testament. Jesus never refers to him. He refers to all sorts. And, you know, when you think about it, Solomon, Jonah, David, many, many other Old Testament personages, but he never speaks of Joseph, never once. He's mentioned four times in the New Testament by name, but uh, nothing is he ever said is ever found quoted in the New Testament. Well, the entire story of Joseph uh, is about God's sovereignty. That wonderful truth that we'll examine here in a moment. And God's providential care of his own. Providence is different from sovereignty. It fits under the title of sovereignty. But providence means that God works through ordinary means to bring about his ends. It's not supernatural type things, anti-gravity type machines, if you will. But God works through uh, the, 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 uh, the, the laws of nature as we think of it, or the laws of life as we know it to bring about exactly in his timing his purposes. And so God is both sovereign, and yet here his providential care of his own is wonderfully seen. The Bible says that man plans his course, and we do, but the outcome is the Lord's doing. And we need to plan. We do. To plan is to be like God. God has a great plan from beginning to end. Nothing takes him by surprise. Everything is according to his plan. Even the sinful, willful acts of wicked men and women are included in a plan that God has. And he knows the end from the beginning and the means and all the way through to his glory. We ought to plan. You ought to have a daily daytime or a plan, an organizer, or at least a thought as to how you're going to live your day, Right? We want to get the most out of life. We want to, as stewards, to be able to do that. Why? And we bear a resemblance to God when we do that. But have you noticed? Not everything you and I plan comes about exactly the way we thought. There are curveballs and surprises, and, and sometimes we go like, where did that come from, right? Man plans his course, and we ought to. We see that in the book of Genesis here in the life of Joseph. But the outcome, the outcome, 
is certain, and it's always of the Lord. Well, by way of introduction then, I want us to uh, look at five lessons gleaned from Joseph's story that should encourage you in living for Christ. By way of an introduction, I want to assume that you have sort of a knowledge of Joseph. And I want to talk about five lessons that will come to us through this series. And by way of uh, introduction, what your appetite, encourage you, motivate you to live for Christ. For Joseph serves uh, not only as a type of Christ, for he does. There are many of the authors that write of that. In Joseph's uh, many years, uh, we discover that nothing in the text has ever said that he did sinfully. We have David, the beloved of the Lord, but he sinned. Remember that with Bathsheba, and the text records it with great transparency. But in Joseph's case, he was a sinner. He needed a Savior. He is wonderfully redeemed. He was a godly man who lived all his days, as it were, with his eyes fixed upon the Lord. In fact, the biblical record of Joseph's story begins when he's merely 17 years old and extends until he's 110 at the point that he dies and he goes to heaven. Well, he serves as a type of Christ, but more than that, Joseph serves as a model for us as Christians. And so the first lesson that I submit to you in the life of Joseph is, number one, God is in control of all things. This includes nature, and it includes the nation's and that he rightly orders the affairs of his people. Nature, nations, and it means that even if he, he even, he even in, rightly orders the affairs of all his people, that means if you belong to him, he's orchestrating all the details of your life and mine. Amazing as that is, it would overwhelm us if we were to do that even for our own life. But God does that for all people everywhere, but particularly for his own, for his glory. You see, you are not without a captain. You're not like the ship out at sea without a, that they found with nobody aboard, floating around wherever the wind and the currents took it, without a captain. The world teaches that. The world says you came from nowhere, you're going nowhere, you have no reason to be here, and you're nothing more than the sum total of 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 biochemical processes, and that's it. When you're dead, you're gone, that's it. That's what the Bible teaches. And it's no wonder that uh, we see the things going on in our world today that we see. There are no boundaries. There are no fences. There's, uh, it's, it's like judges. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And we're living to see a generation or two after the wholehearted teaching of, of the atheistic evolutionism that we see in our culture and in our society. I read one man this week on, or the, the week ago on this, and he said, well, of course, we have to embrace evolution. The, the, if, if we don't, the only alternative is that there's a God in control of all things who will judge all. And we don't want that. Well, at least he was honest. And you have to give him that much. And we're seeing the outworking of that. Tell people they're animals in time, they act like animals. You know, why can't I do anything I want? Why can't I destroy the unborn babe? Why can't I kill my children? Why can't I kill, why can't I do whatever I feel like doing? 
I'm the king, I'm the boss, it doesn't matter anyway, there's no morals, everything. Truth is utterly subjective. What I think is true is true. That's not what the Bible says. God gave Ten Commandments, His holy person. It is a moral universe, and it doesn't matter if you disagree, you're going to hit the wall. And that's what our culture, sadly to say, is doing. God is in control of all things, includes nature, includes the nations, and that he also rightly orders the affairs of his people. Well, A, God is sovereign. What does that mean? It means that he's able to do whatsoever he desires to do with his creation, and he will. He is the divine potentate, king of kings and lord of lords. Did you notice the universe is not a democracy? Heaven's not going to be like that. We're not going to vote. I'm sorry. I know some of you are uh, in a certain political party and this and that, and uh, we're going to have a big rally. And None of that will be in heaven. God isn't going to say, well, what do you guys think? No, he'll do whatever, and he has always done whatever he desires to do. He is the absolute monarch of the universe. He is almighty, so he can do whatever. He's holy, and whatever he does is right and true. And there's no one that would ever counsel him. You and I need a lot of counsel. In the midst of counsel, there's wisdom. And so we seek counsel. God doesn't need any. Isaiah 40. For whom did the Lord seek advice? None. Who could advise him? He knows everything. He's all wise. He knows the best usage of that knowledge. God is sovereign. He's able to do whatever he desires to do with his creation. He does not answer to anyone. There's no recall. Sometimes they'll do an impeachment. They'll threaten President Bush. We need to impeach him, right? This kind of silly nonsense distraction, right? To recall him. There's nobody that recalls God. None. He doesn't answer to anyone. He reigns in absolute control and rules over the universe as king of kings and lord of lords. And we see that. We're going to see it very clearly in the Joseph narrative. That God is in complete control. You know, we just went through Passion Week. And you can't read the Gospels. And I have done that for years. I read the Gospel account of, the, of the, that last week and try and read in all four Gospels. Uh, you can't read that without the stunning realization that though the Lord comes into Jerusalem and all that he does that week, and then, he, then he's arrested, and then the mockery trials, and then the crucifixion, you can't read that without the overwhelming sense, wait a minute, it seems like Jesus is in control of all the things that are happening here. And that's exactly right. Exactly. Exactly. According even to the prophets, to the parting of his garments, to him being uh, killed between uh, two thieves and being buried in a rich man's tomb. I mean, he lays down his life. Nobody takes it. In fact, they were surprised he died after six hours. Usually they hung there for 24 or longer. And sometimes they'd break the legs to cause a fixation. The Lord breathed his last. He died at the moment that he decided. He was in control. We see that even in the, the, the week, the Passion Week, the week of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Well, B, in the Joseph story, we see God's control of nature. How? He's there's going to be a famine come, a famine for uh, seven years uh, that uh, will follow seven years of bounty. Well, who's in charge of that? God's in charge of the weather. Somebody just told me that today. 
Yeah, Lenny, you insist for Tommy. Your, your mama says, you say, God's in charge of the weather. That's right. It's not the weather, man. We get mad at him. Going to have a picnic, going to go swimming, and it rained. He said it was going to be beautiful. Well, God's in charge of the weather. He's in charge of all of that, nature and creation, all of that. God sets all the boundaries. He does. But more, and we, we're going to see that in the film. We also see us control the nations and the directing in the future Israel, seen in the Jacob and his sons. He's going to have them go to Egypt, there in the land of Goshen, to take care of them. Uh, a shepherd was despised by the Egyptians, and so they didn't want anything to do with them, so it worked out perfect. Joseph put them up in the land of Goshen, and there God just prospered them and multiplied them and cared for them. God is in charge of not only nature, but also nations, the rising and the falling of that. We saw that some time ago as we studied the book of Daniel. God is in charge of all these things. He's, he's in charge even in the, the appointment of Joseph. We're going to see he's, he's going to be named as the prime minister to Pharaoh, the greatest nation of the world at that point. Amazing. He went from prison and the shake of a stick to the throne room, standing right next to Pharaoh. Had all the authority of Pharaoh. God is in the midst of doing that, even in the nations. Uh, we see it also in the many details of Joseph's life. Some good and many bad. Many, but God's hand weaving all those things together to bring about uh, his purposes. I say to you, God is in control of all things. He sets all the boundaries and all the minutiae in between. Absolutely incredible. Incredible. The sovereignty of God. And you and I sometimes go through some deep waters, don't we? I'm telling you, the sovereignty of God, to know that God is in control and sets all the boundaries and all the details of as particularly the lives of his children is the only soft pillow that will allow you to sleep during such times. I've known it, and yet I've tossed and turned. But the realization, Lord, you're in control even though I can't see it. Thank you. Thank you, it's not just up to me. I'd be a disaster waiting to happen if I had to depend on myself for all the outcomes of my life and the life of my family. And the life It's up to God, not me. The longer I live, the more I want to just get in line and do what I need to do to God's glory because he's in charge and I'm not. We're going to see it. Number of first lesson, God is in control of all things. Second lesson, God uses the smallest and almost insignificant of things that bring about his purpose. God is so great, I submit to you, that he uses the smallest of things to do his great work. It's absolutely remarkable. It's remarkable. Remember that time with uh, uh, Moses at the burning bush? And Moses is hemming and hawing and not sure that he's to be God's man in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4. And, uh, and God, uh, he, he really tries the patience of God. And God said, finally says, Moses, what's that in your hand? He's holding what? He's holding an almond stick, an almond branch. That's his, his uh, staff as a shepherd. Throw it on the ground. And Moses' staff, that little thing, becomes, in God's uh, ways, a serpent. Remember that? A little thing, like this staff. 
An amazing thing. Now that was miraculous. But in Joseph's life, we're going to see many of these small, little, almost insignificant things that God uses and weaves together to bring about his great work. I often think about that with uh, redemption and the need for a Savior. I mean, when you think about uh, our need of Christ, we're lost under judgment. You can't save ourselves. Our good works is as filthy rags. How are the elect, how are God's children ever going to be saved? We need a Savior. And so that being the case, the very plan of God, you would have think he would have said, this is such a titanic need, so important. This is the most important thing. Greater than the cure of cancer, greater than the cure of ALS or some of these terrible diseases, right? I better send in the Marines. This is so important. God is so great. What's he do? To magnify the greatness, he gives a baby. Could there anything be more helpless, almost insignificant of human life than a baby? To be man's desire? That's how great God is. I mean, Herod tried to destroy all the babies there in Bethlehem. Remember that? God was caring for that flight into Egypt and all that. We're going to see that over and over in Joseph's life. And it's rather remarkable that God uses the smallest and almost insignificant of things to bring about his purposes in Joseph's life. A, God uses the little things as links in the chain of circumstances by which he was to exalt Joseph, the prime minister, and eventually to save millions and millions of people from starvation during the famine. These circumstances are as insignificant as what? The father giving his son a special coat or tunic. Now, who would have thought of that? Uh, when my boys were a certain age, I said, it's time you get a suit. And uh, so we went over, and uh, I remember David uh, got a suit, and then Jonathan, when he's a certain age, got a suit. You ought to get a suit and look sharp at those occasions and all that. Jacob, there was a point in his life for a lot of reasons we'll look at, decided, i got to give Joseph, my beloved son, a, uh, a tunic or a coat, a special coat. We learned in Sunday school it was a coat of many colors. Who would have thought something like the giving uh, of a coat from a father to a son would be pivotal? What an insignificant thing. And yet it would lead to God's caring for millions of his own there in Egypt. That's the kind of God we worship. Not only the giving of a coat, how about dreams? Do you dream at night? When your cares and worries are many, the Bible says we dream. Some have said that when we dream, it's like the mind takes the junk out. It's trying to get rid of some of these, these things that weigh heavily upon us. I don't know much about that, but I've read that for certain. But who would have thought uh, a dream? God gave uh, Joseph uh, a couple of dreams. They were revelatory. God was speaking to him, and they were predictive in nature. And then there were a couple other dreams. You remember that? Uh, two men that Joseph met uh, when uh, he was in prison. They had a dream. Who would have thought a dream and a coat and a, uh, these, uh, these, these things that, how would you ever connect these dots? And yet God is weaving a tapestry uh, through all of this to bring about uh, his purposes. 
he sold to Potiphar. The brothers hated him, sell him to the Midianites. He goes into Egypt. Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh, the king's guard, buys him. He's in his home. Who would have thought that would have entered into all of this? And, uh, and so on. Well, uh, number one, when these things happen in our lives, these things that are, you know, day-to-day, all these sort of things, we seldom realize how important they are. It's like when you come, you're driving your car, and you come to a T. Do you go right or do you go left? You know, and we make that right or that left depending on our purposes and where we're going, and little do we realize how that may enter in and play out the details of God's purposes in our life. We're not. We, we don't realize it. We, we can't. We're not cognizant of it. We're not able to see the big picture. We're just, as far as we know, we're making a right-hand turn. For that reason, if we made a left-hand turn, maybe there was a semi coming down and would have squashed us. You know, I often think about that. We thank the Lord for His care and His protection, and we ask for that, and we ought to do that, and uh, little do we realize. 30 seconds here, an hour there, or someone running a red light. We saw that terrible tragedy uh, in the paper this week where that couple uh, from the West Shore, uh, or she had uh, gone to Cedar Cliff, and they were killed down on on, uh, 270 in Maryland by... uh, by someone that cut them off. It was a sad obituary in the paper this morning, a picture of both of them together. And uh, sometimes that happens. I don't know if they were believers or, or, or not, but uh, God's care, make a right hand or left hand turn and little things like, like that. What are these? Look at number two. But when we look back at our life, not always, but often we can see that God was at work. And often when we are least aware of his workings, we look back and we can string some of the things together. We still have a lot of questions, maybe, and a lot of things we're not sure, certain about, but God is at work bringing about His purposes. Now, Mark, I don't want to embarrass you, but I did think about you with this, and I don't maybe have the whole story. And it would be fun to ask everyone, you know, what little things in your life, and then they turned out to be pivots to a certain direction that God was leading. When I, th- when I wrote this, I remember you telling me that when you were a young boy, uh, you and your sister needed to have orthodontics work. And, and for an whatever and all the reasons, your family could only afford one. And, uh, and therefore, you were ch- your mom and dad said, Daddy, you said, Mark, you're going to get it. And he probably had the worst teeth or something. And, uh, and so, so you had orthodontics, and you were exposed to that. And I don't know if you had the thought before that. No, but look at that. There's a thought in the family, and, uh, and then it leads to God's working in your heart and life, and you end up going, Gee, I think I'd like to study maybe dentistry, maybe orthodontics, and, you know, a little thing like that. And then you come back and take care of your sister and put braces on her. And it just, I mean, we, we look back and we go, it's just, it's just f- f- fantastic, really. I can think of numerous things in my life, little things, little points of decisions. Even most recently in our life, you knew that without Sarah and Greg going to, to Qatar, uh, and then Sarah gave birth to our, our granddaughter in Qatar, uh, normally had they, she'd just given birth here in the States, down even at Hopkins, they would have missed uh, her illness. 
they always screen for those type of illnesses because of the, the intermarrying of family over in, in Qatar. And so they, they look for those type of things. And uh, probably little, our little Taylor was within a day of, uh, of death. Uh, her potassium levels were so unbelievably high, it would have put her heart into stoppage mode or arrhythmia and then stop. But the fact that they were, I mean, one decision, I remember when he first said, I might go, what do you think if I go to the Middle East? And then they go like, what? I mean, that's, are you, sh- I mean, what are you thinking? You know, did you, uh, the, and bit by bit, and the Lord uh, made it evident that they should go, and look at that, that that's just one. And, and it's like, some of you like to play chess, right? And it's a strategy and all this. But really, uh, I often view life as, with God, as a multi-level chess, chessboard. We're thinking linear one decision, then maybe another. God is working on multiple levels. I mean, that's not the only reason our kids went to Qatar, and we may not know all the reasons why. Uh, I mean, they're part of a good church over there. They're an influence to others that will go around the world. I mean, you just think of the potential of all these things, and in your hearts and lives as well. And so I say to you, when we look back, we can begin to see that God was at work, and uh, even often when we were least aware of His workings. See, God takes the smallest of circumstances and he weaves them together to accomplish his own perfect plan. With our God, there's no such thing as mere circumstances. We, 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 we talk that way. Just a mere, mere circumstance. Just a coincidence. There are no coincidences with God. None. None. We need to get our arms around that and really hold on to that. God even works through the evil acts of simple men to bring about his praise. The little things, the little things. And I'll, I'll just close this point with this last illustration. Uh, Jim Boyce tells of the story uh, of his own testimony. He said in 1951, there was this medical doctor, the surgeon who was in Philadelphia uh, doing some surgical studies. He was there for several years with his family. And uh, they ended up going to 10th Presbyterian Church where Dr. Uh, Donald uh, Gray Barnhouse was a great preacher, great preacher of a whole generation. And while there, that uh, surgeon came to know Christ the Lord as his Savior. Bit by bit, uh, he, was, uh, he went back into the Pittsburgh area, actually McKeesport, and he opened the surgical practice. And... Uh, and then uh, in time, uh, as he began, as they, they, that family joined a church and uh, that uh, surgeon began uh, a Sunday school class, uh, he urged his pastor to invite Dr. Barnhouse to come and to speak. And so an invitation was given and Dr. Barnhouse went to Pittsburgh. And by that point, they decided they'd invite a lot of other uh, churches and they, had, uh, they rented a big hall. And Dr. Barnhouse had a tremendous set of meetings there in the, in the greater Pittsburgh area. And when he uh, returned, uh, he was uh, talking to the congregation there at 10th in the city of Philadelphia, how amazed he was that at a mere coincidence of a doctor attending and visiting the church, that that doctor would come to know Christ the Lord as Savior, that in the bit of time, a number of years later, it would be the reason for an enormous number of people in the city of Pittsburgh hearing the wonder of God's word and his gospel. 
He was just marveling at these little so-called incidental mere circumstances, and yet God was weaving it all together. But Boyce goes on to say, the story doesn't end there. He said, that doctor was my father. And little did uh, Dr. Barnhouse know that there was a 13-year-old boy also in that meeting at McKeesport, who when uh, Dr. Barnhouse was preaching, it solidified the call of God in his life to be a pastor. And uh, from that point on, uh, he determined what kind of pastor he was going to be, and he went to college and then seminary, went even to Europe and did uh, doctoral studies. Following that, he took a position with Christianity Today magazine in the greater Washington, D.C. area. He was there for a couple of years when a Dr. Frank Gabeline came to visit. Gabeline, a great uh, literary uh, writer and uh, editor, he was trying to help uh, in addressing some of the problems Christianity Today magazine was having. And just a side comment, and note that, just a side comment, Dr. Gabeline asked Dr. Boyce, and, well, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And Dr. Boyce said, well, I really feel like uh, God wants me to pastor. And that was it. It was the end of the conversation. Following that meeting there, Dr. Gabeline took the train to Philadelphia, was met at the train station by a member of the pulpit committee of 10th Presbyterian Church, and he asked that pulpit committee member, have you found God's man for your church yet? Of which he said, no. Dr. Gabeline said, I think I have found the man for you. And of which he said, I think you ought to take a look at Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. And that was 1968, and God was to use those circumstances to bring that man to 10th to have a long and very fruitful ministry. God weaving together side comments, incidental, mere circumstances. That's how great God is to bring about his glory. It's amazing to me. It's amazing. He that has an eye, let him see what God is up to. The third lesson, quickly, God does not immune his own children from suffering. Oh, we wish he did, don't you? Who likes pain? I don't like pain. Faith is suffering. She's down with a sinus cold here. Last night it came on and, and, and today and, and all that. Who likes suffering? Who likes even more severe pain? I don't. I'm wimpy with that. Hey, Joseph, a godly man, suffered much during his life. He endured the hatred of his brothers, the separation from his family, the false accusations from Potiphar's wife. Years, years, years spent in prison. One day after another day after another day. I don't know what you think of John McCain as a, as a potential presidential uh, candidate, but you have to admit this and give it to him. I think the man was, was it seven years of POW in Hanoi? Seven years, day after day after day. And that was about half the time that Joseph was in prison, from 17 or so to uh, around 30 when he finally became the prime minister of Egypt. Long periods of time. Wow. Suffering. Unjustly. Unfair. That's not fair. One of our children has a real strong sense of justice. That's not fair. That's, if, you say, if you find yourself saying that a lot, then you do too. 
a strong, a, strong, a strong sense of what's right and what's wrong and when it's crossed. That's not fair. Joseph could have said, that's not fair, Lord. I did what was right, and you threw me in the brink here. And I think you threw the key away. It's been a lot of years. You know, we can sustain. I said that the other week, right? And when we looked at uh, Psalm 13, most of us can sustain a blow. Just, man, it knocks us down like one of these big linebackers hits us blindside, and we go fly into the gridiron. Wow, never saw it coming. Most of us can sustain that. We, we get up slowly, wipe the dust off, and hopefully regroup, right? It's the long ones. It's the chronic situation. It's the one where you don't see the light. At. Those are the ones where we just about lose it. Every one of us, all of us, I'm included with that. It's hard. We're feeble. We're weak. We're frail. We're small. Joseph suffered 13 years and for at, while they were on We know the end of the story here, and it ends wonderfully. But at this point, he probably thought, this is going to be it. He'll get sick in prison, die, and that's it. Gone. Wow. At times, it seems unfair, B, and confusing. But if endured by faith, suffering would bring about God's blessings. I see in Joseph that adversity did not harden his character. It can. If we're not careful, it can harden our hearts. We have to be real careful about that. The Lord, keep my heart soft and tender. And second, prosperity when he was raised to the throne didn't ruin him either. He was the same in public as he was in private. He was truly a great man. He really was. And in the end, Joseph would acknowledge that God meant it all for good. Remember that? We'll see that. In Genesis 50, 20, he says to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He saw the invisible hand of God in that. One man writes, because of this, we must never chafe against the circumstances God brings to us. For God is weaving the tapestry of our lives together, and he is. Well, the fourth lesson we're going to see as we look at Joseph's life, God desires his own to trust him under all circumstances. Trust him. Trust and obey, we're fond of singing. We're men and women of faith. That means we rest in him, not only for salvation, ultimately and finally, and we do, but for living. We trust him. We walk by faith, not by sight. That's Hebrews 11. That's us. That's the distinguishing mark of God's people. We're men and women of faith. We're trusting him in all circumstances. What kind of people would we be if we only trust him when the skies are blue and the sun is shining? Uh, that, that's like fair-weather friends. Who needs those? They're around when the days are nice and you're going to have a picnic. A real friend is there for all seasons. Our faith and trust in God ought to be always just that very, very same thing. In all seasons, in all times, the ups and the downs and all arounds, like Joseph. A, Joseph's life illustrates for us the triumph of truth. No matter what happens to him, whether good or bad, he always seems to be able to keep his eye fixed on God. He never complains. Oh, boy. He never compromises. Never. 
He's God-centered in all things, and so should we. No matter the news, no matter the circumstances, the ups and downs and all arounds, and so should we. Joseph's story is perhaps the best example in all the Bible, the benevolent providence of God. Now, Romans 8.28, we're fond of knowing that and quoting that, for we know that in all things God works for the good, for those who love him. Now, I'm sure Joseph uh, knew the sense of that. It was written later, of course. But they're in prison. He couldn't see it. And when we're in those darkness of days and difficult of valleys, trusting God, Lord, I'm trusting you to weave together that which is good. I can't see it, but I'm keeping my eye fixed on you. Someone said in times of darkness, keep believing your beliefs. Joseph kept his eyes fixed on the Lord. Well, from Joseph's example, we're going to learn many things. First of all, how to face adversity. How do we do it? There, do you notice that you do have adversaries and there are troubles in life? Joseph had them. Therefore, we can easily identify with him. Second, to resist illicit sexual advances. How did he do that? A day that's X-rated and overexposed with sexual immorality everywhere. How did he do it? How do we do it? We'll look at that. C, three, he plans for the future. He was a planner. God is a planner. We'll see how he does that in the wisdom of planning. Four, how to forgive those who wrong us. Have you ever had anybody wrong you? You do live on earth, Right? And we're to, we're to forgive, even as we have been forgiven. How do we do that? We see it in Joseph. doesn't seem to be an ounce of any retaliation in his tone and way. Number five, trust in God's promises. Number six, recognize the sovereignty of God even when wronged by others. I said it already, 50 verse 20. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. There's the sovereignty of God in the midst of evil acts that are done to us when we're wronged by others. Number five and last lesson that we're going to look at by way of introduction as we study the life of Joseph, God continues to guide the lives of his children. He never stops. Never does he. In Joseph's life, this was no less true when he was in prison than when he was next to Pharaoh's throne. God continues to guide the lives of his children. In fact, Paul put it this way, God has foreordained the good works that you and I are to do. That's not just pastors and missionaries or whoever else. It's all of us. If you know the the Lord Jesus as your Savior, God has already uh, ordained the good works that you are to do in running the race and finishing the course that God has set for you and for me. And so God guides Joseph's life. Uh, allows him to go even into prison, and then even exalted to the throne. And B, the important thing for every believer is what? Is to be living in the light of God's presence. Knowing that his life, our life, your life, is being guided by God's own hand. Look at Joseph. God wove all the threads together, even the dark ones, the evil the bad things that were done to him, even the dark threads. God wove it all together to make a tapestry of the life of Joseph, which was absolutely beautiful.
And that's what God is doing in your life, if you know him, and certainly in my life. We may come across a knot or two and wonder, how in the world? I don't think I can go on. Help, Lord. That's not a bad place to be, really, if you think about it. it makes us more dependent on him, doesn't it? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight, or he will guide you. God continues to guide the lives of his children. Well, by way of introduction, now what can we say are the lessons for life for us at this juncture? Number one, all of us should rest All of us should rest in the knowledge that our God controls all things. You should rest in that. You say, well, maybe I was born in the wrong family. I got news for you. You weren't. You say, well, maybe uh, if uh, I'm too tall or too short, I'm too this or too that, too stupid or too this or that, and all these things, right? The way we think about it. No, I don't think so. God knows what he's doing, and He's orchestrated all things, and and you ought to rest in that. You're beautiful by God's design, His sweet providence. And we ought to rest in the knowledge that our God is in control of all things. Things in the classroom, maybe you're facing, things at work, things in your family. Say, I don't see, I don't see how God uh, is going to bring good out of this. You're with Joseph. Lord, what... Yeah, my brothers hate me. They want to kill me. They sold me away all these years in jail. What good could come out of this, you see? And yet God was working in and through it all, sovereignly, through providential means, controlling all things. Number two, God is uh, so great that he often uses the smallest of things to bring about his purposes in our lives. Don't miss us. Give glory to God. He's amazing to me, Uh, just amazing when I think about uh, the smallness of things. Listen, the closer you look at what God has done, the more amazed you will be. It's just the opposite. We said that Wednesday night at prayer meeting again. The closer you look at what man has done, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Even the best of our things. But the closer you look at what God has done, the more amazed you will be. Faith and I had occasion on Friday to go down to Washington, D.C., and the season seems a little bit ahead of us down there. We were, wanted to see some of the blossoms, and they had come and gone, and yet there were apple trees that were blossoming and flowers everywhere and tulips, and, and we just the, enjoyed the beauty of spring down in the D.C. area. It was just blooming, the beauty of that on late Friday afternoon. And I got really close to some of those tulips. I'm just amazed at the beauty of what God has done. And that's the truth. God is so great. He uses the smallest of things. He does to bring about purpose, his purposes in our lives. The third lesson. Just be reminded that suffering is part of life in a fallen world. Suffering. Joseph suffered. The Lord Jesus Christ suffered like no man suffered. Why do you think you and I should be immune from suffering? God has so much to teach us in the schools and the hallways of suffering that we're not ready for. 
uh, when things are great. There's more wisdom in the house of sorrow than there is in the house of a party. Ecclesiastes tells us. And though I never want to sign up for that class, God has a way of signing us up. And he teaches us much, and he grows us up through suffering, physical and sufferings of others around us, to his glory alone. Take heart. He has purpose in it. He's not behind schedule. He's not ahead of schedule. He's not left us. He's been here all the while. And in fact, he carries us. Remember that footprints poem? I look back in the sand, and there's only one set of footprints. Even though I was walking, I realized that those times the Savior carried me. And there are times when we must be carried. I, you, there are times like that. And God uses that suffering to bring about his glory. Number four, we must learn to walk by faith. Trusting God in all the circumstances in life. Ours is a walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5. Walk by faith, not by sight. For what would it be if it were by sight? It would not be by faith. Trusting the Lord and committing ourselves to Him. It's a learning process. We learn to trust Him with our all. For He's trustworthy. We need to grow up in that. And that's part of the reason trouble and sorrow and things are orchestrated in our life. To, so we grow up. It's resistance training. We develop like we would uh, muscles uh, in lifting uh, free weights or something physically. Through the resistance, you've got to move, go through the arc motion of that. And the same thing is true in our own hearts and soul. Joseph as well developed uh, the ability to learn to trust God for all things through the hard times. And so must we. Number five and last. You're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ the Lord as your personal Savior. He is a personal Savior, not just a blank check for all people everywhere. There's something you must do. You must admit that you're a sinner, lost. You've broken God's moral law. You've lied. You've, you've cheated. You've stolen. You've, you've uh, blasphemed God. You've been not honorable to your parents. We've, we've all bro broken the law. We're lawbreakers. We need to come to see that, uh, for the wages of sin is death. We come to realize that Christ died to make the only payment for sin. Well, you must receive him. You must acknowledge your sinfulness. You must repent, turn from it. You must receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Joseph was a redeemed man. And because of that, and because of what God did in his heart and life, that's the reason we're going to study him. He has so much to teach us by way of example and life lesson. Joseph is God's man for a season. Let me encourage you in the weeks to come that uh, perhaps in your own quiet time you might uh, open to Genesis 37 and then read uh, through chapter 50 uh, the whole account of uh, Joseph. All but two of the chapters really focus on him and that will help with what God would have for you during this series on Joseph. Well, let's stand and be dismissed with.